Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Flash floods inundated the area after heavy rain, trapping people in their homes and submerging cars. This is the worst drought to hit South Africa since 1982. An entire community is forced out by a threatening and out-of-control wildfire. Climate change, climate crisis. They don't begin to capture the gravity of the situation. Northeast India and neighboring Bangladesh have been hit by heavier-than-usual monsoon rains, causing widespread flooding. More than 180 people have been killed due to record amounts of rain mostly in Germany. Our planet, our only home, may soon become uninhabitable. Nowadays, about three-quarters of the Earth, of the mainland, is not a pristine nature anymore. Put in dramatic words, is the, the end of nature. The end of nature has a name, the Anthropocene. Dutch scientist Paul Crutzen coined the term in the year 2000. Since then, the term has become ubiquitous. We changed it. And we changed it in a relatively short time. Relatively. Some would say breathtakingly that we humans have transformed the Earth in the last 70 years. That was the conclusion of a scientific panel set up in 2009 to establish the facts of the Anthropocene. 24 degrees right now. The heat soared into the 40s this week, causing streetcar power cables to melt and service to be suspended. And as we keep saying, the biggest concern is we had... And the planet has responded at an accelerated pace. Experts say what's happening is part of a pattern, and it's just a taste of what's to come. The panel's next step was to identify a place, one single spot, anywhere on the planet, where the impact of human activity has been embedded in the geological record. They may end up choosing a small lake in southern Ontario. Contributor David Kattenberg in the Netherlands brings us his documentary, The Great Acceleration. Earth is a remarkable planet, a rocky orb spinning around a small star in that sweet spot where water flows and life thrives. Earth is a dynamic planet in constant motion. Solar heat and matter circulate between atmosphere, oceans, rock and ice, sphere to sphere in vast creeping cycles. Earth's biosphere accelerates those cycles, capturing energy and matter, processing them, and generating wastes. It has a metabolism. The thing about planet Earth is that it's a system. Throughout its 4.6 billion years, the Earth system has shifted from one state to another, some stable, others not. Tectonic forces have ripped its continents apart smashed them back together again. Cataclysmic events have played out over gargantuan periods of time. 
volcanoes have blackened its skies, drenching it with torrents of acid. Sometimes, Earth changed in an instant. Walloped by a huge meteor or comet, pulverizing its surface and choking its atmosphere with dust and fumes. Through it all, planet Earth rolled with the punches, always functioning, returning over the ages to some new normal. Then, about a hundred thousand years ago, guess who showed up? Homo sapiens was a restless and ingenious species, as depicted in the dramatic opening scene of Stanley Kubrick's classic film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. But there weren't many of us then, so while early humans may have hunted the mastodon and other large mammals to extinction, they didn't disrupt Earth systems. They didn't drive Earth into an altered state. Fast forward. About 12,000 years ago, the Earth shifted once again. Its climate warmed and stabilized. Perfect conditions for humans to settle down, grow crops, raise animals, and create bustling civilizations. Human beings were just gathering speed. 200 years ago, a billion humans roamed the planet. British, German, and French geologists were now dividing Earth's history into chronological stages, each with its own name. In 1833, British scientist Charles Lyell suggested the recent. Others proposed the Holocene, or whole new, the age in which Earth had been, as Lyell put it, tenanted by man. Talk about bad tenants. British industrialists were now building factories, trains, and ships, all fueled by carbon that had been buried in the Earth for millions of years, returning that carbon to the atmosphere in the mere blink of an eye. The worst was yet to come. In the mid-20th century, humans broke an even greater planetary barrier, an explosive achievement ruefully commemorated by America's counterculture comics, the Fire Sign Theater. Civilization! What better way to mark Earth's new age than to give it a name, the Anthropocene? The original concept was, was from Paul Crutzen, and he basically just said that this was a clear indication that we no longer live in this time interval called the Holocene. In 2009, a scientific panel was set up to examine Crutzen's idea, the Anthropocene Working Group. Colin Waters is the chair. So the last 11,700 years of this sort of interval of time since the end of the last ice age, there has been a fairly constant environment. 
humans have developed their civilizations almost because of that very pleasant environment. The original concept was that it should start around about, say, 1780 with the introduction of the Industrial Revolution in the UK. But when you start to look at the data, that impact is, is moderately small in most parts of the planet. CO2 concentrations are starting to increase, but the main physical impacts of that in many parts of the world is just not really evident until much later. We don't see that until we get to about 1950. 1950 was a big year for human beings and their planet. American consumers were now accelerating down highways in big, fast, gas-guzzling cars. American entertainer Dinah Shore celebrated their speed and mobility. The heart of the matter is scale, scope, and pace. Humans, for a very long time, have been uh, altering the environments in which they live. But in the middle of the 20th century, they began to do so faster and on a larger scale, and as far as we could tell, for the first time, to fundamentally affect the governing biogeophysical cycles of the Earth, the carbon cycle, the water cycle, and at the same time, beginning to have a profound effect on the climate system. American historian John McNeil came up with a name for humanity's increasingly fast fossil fuel-powered age, the Great Acceleration. Why did all this happen only then, in the middle of the 20th century? I point to two main reasons, and the first of them is the suffusion of the planet by a fossil fuel-based energy regime. Now, the fossil fuel-based energy regime began earlier. You could say it began in the late 18th century in Britain. But the scale, scope, and pace of fossil fuel use uh, ratcheted up dramatically in the middle of the 20th century. Our planet has never held so many people as the era of huge population growth continues. Back in 1800, there were around one billion people on Earth, and it took over a century for that to double. Then it really took off in the 20th century, reaching three billion. The second driving force, uh, at least as I understand it, behind the Great Acceleration was uh, world population growth. It's incontrovertible that in the middle of the 20th century, a huge acceleration in global population growth took place. So. Those two things, I think, are the heart of the matter in changing dramatically the scale, scope, and pace of global environmental change to the point where the governing biogeophysical cycles of the Earth were altered fundamentally. That's the great acceleration in a nutshell. Humanity's great acceleration was like a person on steroids, scarfing down food, washing it all down with energy drinks, heart pounding, blood flowing, constantly peeing and pooping, their metabolism working double time. Societies have a metabolism too. Yeah, hello, my name is Fridolin Krausmann. We are here at the Institute of Social Ecology in Vienna, and I am professor for sustainable resource here. And one of the concepts that we use is that um, of society's metabolism. So the idea that any society 
in analogy to an organism, has a permanent throughput of materials and energy. Societies have maintained huge infrastructures, buildings, machineries. We need to build them up. We need to maintain them. It means that societies need to extract resources, energy, materials, digest them in their metabolism, and then everything that goes in at some point comes out again as waste, as emissions. Broadly, we can distinguish three different sociometabolic regimes, if you will, in, his, in human history. Regime number one. There are hunters and hunt and gatherer societies. They have no means to kind of control the energy flows. They basically take what's growing in terms of food or firewood. Sociometabolic regime number two. Agrarian societies, via land use and agriculture, they try to control the energy available uh, that plants produce and that enter food chains. You can probably guess humanity's third regime. With the Industrial Revolution, a shift from the use of solar energy, from biomass, towards fossil deposits of energy carriers. This was 250 years, 300 years ago, when humans started to use coal. Yeah, this was probably a first acceleration of human resource use and of um, environmental change in the 19th century. Um, then we have a second phase of this acceleration. This basically starts after World War II with the shift from coal to oil, a shift which also drove mass production, mass consumption, and at the same time, of course, the production of waste and emissions. And we see then a next phase of this, of this acceleration in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Countries like China, uh, countries in the global south start to build up the structures of society that are massive drivers of resource use with uh, exploiting minerals, ores, fossil resources. We bring in a huge amount of new substances into the biosphere. On the one hand, large amounts, and on the other hand, qualitatively different types of uh, waste flows and outputs of society's metabolism. My name is Martin Head. I'm a professor of earth sciences at Brock University. And I have a particular interest in the Great Acceleration because the changes were so considerable in the mid-20th century to our planet that this actually um, justifies the rank of uh, epoch for this new interval that we're in. What we're really seeing with the Anthropocene is a change in planetary state. It was a Earth system scientist uh, by the name of Will Steffen who was looking at these various curves of Earth system's response to these various changes, and, and he um, recognized that changes occurred around the mid-20th century that were actually transformational to our planet. Will Steffen's Great Acceleration Curves were first published in 2007 in collaboration with Paul Crutzen and John McNeil. There are two sets of curves, or graphs, one for socioeconomic drivers of planetary change, population, GDP, foreign direct investment, energy use, transportation, and so on. The second set of graphs charted Earth system trends, atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases, surface temperature, ocean acidification, tropical forest loss, and so on. The evidence that Stefan has accumulated is absolutely indisputable. I'm Thomas Homer Dixon. I'm the executive director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University. I lead a team of researchers who examine possibilities for pernicious cascades between global systems, climate, economic, food systems, and the like. 
and also possibilities for what we call virtuous cascades, where we might intervene in these systems to accelerate positive change, change that benefits humankind. For me, it all comes back to energy. And why wouldn't it? Just about every chart that Stefan produces can be traced back to that expropriation and exploitation of fossil fuel energy. Hundreds of millions of years of solar energy captured in sedimentary rock strata that we've extracted and mobilized during a very short period of time. So one of the things as a complexity theorist that I note is that that kind of energy input into a system will increase and sustain complexity. So we have all these remarkable and remarkably dense connections between us, movements of energy and material and information like these connections have multiplied to the billions, to the trillions, and that's sustained by enormous inputs of energy. This all goes back to fossil fuels. The Great Acceleration and Anthropocene are more than just interesting ideas. They're paradigms, concepts and theories about how Earth works as a system and how humans have shifted that system out of gear. If Google hits are any indication, millions of people are interested. But new epochs don't get declared on social media. They get formally designated by the International Union of Geological Sciences. And before that happens, the scientific basis for formal designation has to be established. That's the job of the Anthropocene Working Group. We have so many what we call geosignals. That means signals from what the humans all did recorded in the sediments here. Reinhold Leinfelder is a member of the Anthropocene Working Group. They have three tasks. The first, to identify precisely when Earth's new time period began. They've already decided it began in the mid-20th century, the start of the Great Acceleration. Their second task, to determine how that interval should be ranked in the geochronological time scale. It could simply be a stage, the shortest time unit, or it could be the start of a brand new epoch, terminating the one we've been in for the past 12,000 years, the Holocene, Epochs are periods of massive change. Holocene conditions, warm and stable, were what made human civilization possible in the first place. If the Holocene is over, humanity could be in trouble. The working group's third task amounts to a kind of scientific horse race, identifying the one spot on Earth where the Anthropocene is best observed in the sedimentary record. Its official name is a bit of a mouthful, a global stratotype section and point, GSSP for short, or more poetically, a golden spike. Twelve candidate sites were originally in the running for the Anthropocene Group's golden spike. One of them will be chosen. can be a drill core from Atlantic ice cores or, or Greenland ice. That is then the, the prototype, if you want, for the new epoch, the Anthropocene, where you can see then how it looks like. And if you go into the field, and if it's in the field, you can even nail in a so-called golden spike. Within that drill core, perfectly preserved and dated, a few centimeters of material deposited by human beings starting in the mid-20th century, some of which never existed on Earth before. Plastic particles, concrete, pure aluminium, which is never pure in, the, in nature, 
We have industrial ashes, which we can see here, like dry ash. And even under the electron microscope, we can see that this is derived from high temperature processes, industrial processes here. The most novel signature of human activity, radioactive plutonium-239, from all those atomic and H-bomb tests carried out by the U.S., Russia, the U.K., France, and China between 1946 and 1963. We're now walking up this lovely hill. Yes. What is this lovely hill? This is the Teufelsberg here. Then there's just garbage. The Devil's Hill is built out of it, 80 meters high, piled up between 1950 and 1972 from the rubble of bombed-out Berlin. Today, the Teufelsberg and adjacent Drachenberg are covered in lovely woods and popular hiking destinations for concrete weary Berliners. Beneath their feet, plutonium-239 and a mountain of techno-fossils. This is an archaeological monument now also. So it is part of the technosphere. The technosphere. These are techno-fossils. This we call techno-fossils, yes. Other fossils can tell us about the environment they lived, for instance. But they can tell us also about the age. And techno-fossils do the same. Reinhold Leinfelder and I walked to the top of the Drachenberg along a steep, narrow path prospecting for techno-fossils. Look at this. Okay, this is the old styrofoam. We're a bit unlucky because with the rain this would be washed off better. But I see here, for instance, an old part of a... What? PVC tube. It's a, a old-fashioned. Old and sometimes you find them iron bar inside or so, or with copper inside, which then illegally was taken out again for for reuse. That's another aspect of the Anthropocene, of course, that you should reuse things. So one can see quite some things here, yes. Geologists respect fossils, even if they're just garbage. Being a geologist, I was always able to take a rock along. Now that it's a, a cultural heritage or something like this, I would have asked to per, for permission to take one of these to study it. This is a brick. <laughs> ah, an important brick from the Anthropocene base. <laughs> the Teufelsberg and Drachenberg are monuments to human industry, but mountains of techno-fossils don't form a continuous succession of sedimentary layers, clearly distinct from Holocene sediments below. That's why they were not among the 12 candidate sites for the Anthropocene's golden spike. We do have the best site. We really do have the best site. Yeah, we're not biased, and, I, and like, I have to accept some kind of maternal pride. Francine McCarthy has reason to be proud. The Brock University geologist is lead scientist for Team Crawford, Crawford Lake sits on the edge of the Niagara Escarpment in southern Ontario and is one of the 12 sites in the running for the Anthropocene's Golden Spike. Crawford Lake is meromictic, conical, small, but very deep, so its waters don't mix and its bottom sediments are perfectly preserved. Those sediments have been building up since the start of the Holocene 12,000 years ago. They've been recording human presence along the lake's shores since the late 13th century. We have a very strong record of clear anthropogenic impact on our lake environment between the 13th and 
16th centuries. And so visitors to the Crawford Lake area can see evidence of this local anthropogenic impact, and they can also see the effects of regional impact in the mid-20th century. And then in between, there's the impact of logging by the colonists. So there, there are three different human impact phases on Crawford Lake, only one of which we, the Anthropocene Working Group, would refer to as Anthropocene. So at that spot in the sediment in Crawford Lake, what do you see? So what we see is an increase in spheroidal carbonaceous particles. The main source of the spheroidal carbonaceous particles, or SCPs, are the blast furnaces at the steel mills in Hamilton. So there were these blast furnaces, Stelco, DeFasco, just pumping out huge amounts of these emissions and the wind would just deposit it all over this area. So we have this huge increase in these SCPs. Then there's plutonium-239. The nice thing about plutonium as a marker of the mid-20th century is that plutonium-239 does not occur naturally, and it is liberated into the environment by thermonuclear explosions and we have a record at Crawford Lake that exactly mirrors what you would expect. If you were to model what you should see in a sediment, you would see exactly what we see at Crawford Lake. And part of the reason for that is that our not anoxic bottom waters in our Merrimectic Lake keeps it in place. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast you can find on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. We've all heard of the term Anthropocene, but maybe not the Great Acceleration. It's a controversial idea that humans have transformed Earth in just the last 70 years, shifting Earth into a completely new epoch. Then again, the Anthropocene is also a contested term, first coined in the year 2000 by Dutch researcher Paul Crutzen. Paul Crutzen could never have imagined how many conceptual ships his label would launch, but Anthropocene is more than just a word. It's a huge idea packed with political, social, and cultural baggage, baggage that some people just don't want to carry. They have the problem with the name sometimes, because they say that this is a Western name. It means humans. It's not the fault of all humans that the world has changed so much here. Reinhold Leinfelder. I agree that we have to differentiate, but, but this is like using Anthropocene as the human-made new we should call it the capitalist scene, yeah, yeah, capitalism. Yeah, okay. uh, the Russians, the Chinese, I mean, it was also polluted. It, of course, it comes more from the 
capitalism if you want here, but it's a part of it, it's not all. So at the moment, I think for the time being, this is the encompassing term which covers all this pyrocene, plasticine, uh, homogeneocene, capitalocene and everything like that. I started working on it, about it, and then friends asked me because we had a New Year's Eve fight about the term and I tried to convey you know what's what's the content because a lot of people do not really understand the term they say it's anthropocentric and there's a lot of resistance to alleged implications of the term that are not really implied in the debate when you look at it a little bit harder. Hi, my name is Eva Horn. I'm a professor of modern German literature at the German department of the University of Vienna. And I'm also the founder of the Vienna Anthropocene Network, which is an interdisciplinary network to bring together scholars from many different fields interested in the Anthropocene. When the term started being established not only in earth system sciences where it comes from but it started being discussed in geology humanities scholars and uh, social science scholars said it unifies mankind to one player to one species but no species is more diverse than mankind, especially when it comes to their ecological footprint, right? We have rich and poor, and the poor don't have that much of a footprint, and the rich have an immense footprint. So we cannot talk about anthropos as one single species and unify the term. We need to look about structures, economical inequality, lifestyles, etc. We need to diversify the notion of mankind. My name is uh, Professor Colin Waters. I'm uh, honorary professor here at the University of Leicester and I'm chair of the Anthropocene Working Group. So we had our very first Anthropocene Working Group meeting in 2014 in Berlin. One of us used the phrase humans dominating the planet and we were shot down by people in the group saying well, we shan't say that you, know, you can't say dominated by it's it's influencing the planet and it's this interesting conceptual change that's happened to us as a group but also i think planetary wide if you went back a century or so the clear thought amongst people was that nature was so big that in humans had such a small impact on the planet that we could carry on polluting and it had no great effect It might have a local effect, but as far as changing the planet, nature was too big. And I think we've really transitioned now through to a mentality of, uh, no, we are dominating the planet. If you just look at the, the scale of change. We're not at all dominating anything, especially not the Earth systems. We have become a destabilizing factor within a system that is much greater than us and that will clearly survive humankind and humankind's impact in a different state of the system because the system is so much bigger than us. For Eva Horn, it all comes down to epistemology, the science and philosophy of knowledge. So if we think about an epistemology of the Anthropocene, that would essentially be the question How do we know something about the Anthropocene? What, for instance, is our notion of nature? What is our notion of planetary processes? Men dominating nature is 
a very short-lived idea that essentially comes up in the 19th century and disappears in the 20th. For a very long time, humans were crazy afraid of nature. For a long time, nature was the expression of God's might. But in the 19th century, and that mm, tellingly coincides with the use of fossil fuels, all of a sudden you have discourses like men dominating uh, the earth, being able to technologically control the earth. And then also the idea in, in the, specifically in the American version of a con conservationism, that nature needs protection from humans before in the 17th century, humans needed protection from nature. In the 19th century, all of a sudden, humans, certain humans in the Occident, believe they are above nature and they can, in a certain way, control nature. Geologists and Earth system scientists have their epistemology too. Sometime in 2023, the Anthropocene Working Group will submit its Golden Spike decision to the Geological Committee that commissioned its search. If two-thirds of that committee approve, the proposal will move up to the International Commission on Stratigraphy, and if they give a thumbs up, it'll be presented to the supreme arbiter of all things geological, the International Union of Geological Sciences. It's possible the whole idea could get deep-sixed. So... Why would high-ranking geologists do such a thing? Ask Francine McCarthy. There are all these issues at the which site should we vote for. But then as it moves up to other levels of the International Commission on Stratigraphy, the question of, well, yeah, okay, you have a really sound geologic record that shows really clear evidence of change in Earth systems, but... Mm, not quite at the level of what we would call a new epoch. And so we're not going to use this politically charged name that has Anthropos in it. Um, Anthropocene is politically charged. It's a politically charged notion. It means humans have had the degree of impact on planet Earth that is equivalent to ice sheets, like the Pleistocene. They don't want to accept that the actions of the past have brought us to the present and they do not want to change how we're going to act into the future when it's going to require changes in our economies, in the way we live our lives. I would hope that that doesn't override their ability to see the evidence that it is a different world. We are in a different epoch. I completely disagree. <laughs> well, and you look at all of Will Steffen's The Great Acceleration yeah, Curves yeah, showing these dozen curves yeah. just skyrocketing at yeah. 1950. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, dis I don't disagree with that, of course. I don't disagree with the evidence. I disagree with the, with, with the implications. I mean... You don't disagree with the evidence. You're concerned about the implications. Yeah. Among geologists, no one's more skeptical about the Anthropocene idea than Phil Gibbard. Gibbard is an authority on the Quaternary period, the last 2.6 million years of Earth time. He's also the Secretary General of the International Commission on Stratigraphy, 
and a voting member on the Anthropocene Working Group, Phil Gibbard and I sat down over tea at his kitchen table in Cambridge, England, reviewing his objections. It suggests that nothing was happening and then all of a sudden everything was happening at the boundary. And this is not the reality. This is not true. Otherwise, Crutzen would have been himself originally in 2000 or 2001 have actually had, would, would actually not have identified the Industrial Revolution as the starting point for these changes. And th- this, is, this is very much the point, uh, as I see it, that, that you know, these changes that we see now are continuing to inc- you know, increase and their impact is, is, is becoming increasingly global. No one doubts that. But the truth is that actually human activity began much earlier than this. It began 40,000 years ago and possibly earlier. So you could say that really marking off this last few decades from the rest of the Holocene is an artificial distinction and one which is too focused on humans. So our idea is, is really to identify this interval not in a formal sense, that is drawing a fixed boundary with a GSSP, but actually to identify as what is in geological terms an event. Two publications came out over the past two years, both by Phil Gibbard. One, a practical solution. The Anthropocene is a geological event, not a formal epoch. It implies by a practical solution is that, that there is a problem to begin with, and I'm not sure what the problem is. Martin Head is frustrated. He's worked with Phil Gibbard over the years, and the two do get along. But in December 2022, at a gathering at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, Head shot down Gibbard's idea of the Anthropocene as a geological event. I'll just take one example, greenhouse gas emissions, central, of course, to the evolution of our planet. According to Gibbard and others, these greenhouse gases have been gradually increasing over time, stretching back over at least 10,000 years. There's no indication of a massive increase around the the mid-20th century. We're just seeing a gradual increase in these important drivers of climate change. In other words, the great acceleration is just simply ignored. Phil Gibbard doesn't simply ignore the great acceleration. He completely dismisses it as a recent phenomenon much too recent, well beyond the domain of serious geologists. Our responsibility as geologists is only about the rock or earth history record. We are not concerned with population. We're not concerned with how many McDonald's restaurants there are, uh, etc. We're concerned only with natural, the natural record. The geological record. Exactly right, yes. But, but all these events associated with what's referred to as the Great Acceleration, like... McDonald's, for example, GDP. Car production in Japan. (laughs) Car car production in Japan. All these things lead to actual changes that can be recorded in the surface geologically, right? Yes, that's true. But you have to remember that we're not, as geologists, particularly responsible for the present day. We're dealing with deep time. The question is, how does it help us to understand geology, the the rock record, if we... Uh, draw a boundary at 1950. The point, of course, is in geological terms, the, the, that's today. In fact, it's yesterday, it's just yesterday morning or something of that kind, if you like, because 
we don't know how long this human interaction is going to last. And, and we, we have no clue about, you know, seen from thousands of years in the future, whether this will be more than a blip. Is it your sense that human impacts on planet Earth represents basically just a blip? Geologically speaking, yes. To identify something so close to the present day as a, a separate geological time division is, well, I would say, let's wait and see. It re reminds me of this, this great quote, perhaps apocryphal, of uh, the Chinese foreign minister, Zhou Enlai, back in the 1970s. Somebody asked him, what do you think the impact was of the French Revolution? And he said, it's too early to say. Too early to say, exactly. This is what I was... This is exactly the way that we perceive it. We're too close to this, much too close. The argument that Phil Gibbard and others mm. make is that geologists are not concerned about invasive yeah. species or technology. Yeah. Uh, geologists are concerned about rock. Your argument there is that, that geologists deal with a dead science. Basically, they're looking at something that happened millions of years ago and is not relevant to the present. I am not of that mentality. I, I treat geology as being some, it's a continuum from you know, deep time through to the present day. Geology is still an active process as far as I'm concerned. It's a living science. Yeah. I, I, and if you don't think so, then basically you're saying, well, you know, we, we're now in a point where why fund geology? Because it's not relevant to the present day. What I find being an outsider to their fights that are incredibly interesting and clarifying Normally, a geochronological epoch gets ratified about mm, 12,000 years later, after it began. Now what they are trying is to describe the present, not the Earth past, but what's happening after 1950. Like, what, 70 years? No, we don't do that. We do 2 billion years. We can talk about that. There's absolutely no doubt that humankind is producing massive changes in the biological and physical processes on the planet, and that those changes have accelerated in the last 50 years. Whether it deserves a fundamentally new label, I'm not convinced. I'm Thomas Homer Dixon. I'm the executive director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University. I think the debate has become quite ideological. It's in a funny sort of way accentuating human exceptionalism in just the kind of way that's gotten us into this problem in the first place. We have this existential need to say, well, we're really important and we're changing everything here and let's put a name on it, our time in geological history. Well, okay, fine. If you need that, that's great. Well, I think what they're saying, I mean, people like Martin Head and Colin Waters and other members of the Anthropocene Working Group is that Earth is in a new state. And therefore, we need to designate that. We need to acknowledge that in the geochronological record. It's kind of academic and arcane, but what, what the purpose is to essentially gain formal recognition of the fact that the planet is, has shifted state and we're in trouble. And that, I think, is 100% true. But whether this new state endures with our engagement with it for long enough to justify calling it the Anthropocene, I think is an open question. I, I think it, it could well be an entirely destabilizing event that puts nature on the planet on a different pathway. But we aren't part of that pathway in the future.
because we've gone. Zurich, 23, Citibank. 350, Dallas Swiss. So this is where my particular radicalism comes out. I think it's very likely that this period that we're, that we're currently debating as the Anthropocene may last no more than 150 years. And so human civilization, in particular the period of time during which we've seen this extraordinary acceleration of metabolism on the planet, is going to be an instant in the geological record and therefore doesn't justify such a, a grandiose designation as a whole epoch to itself. And that is the, sort of the deep irony of it. So who cares if geologists declare that the Holocene epoch that most people have never even heard of ended in 1950 at the start of the Great Acceleration and that we're now in a new epoch with humanity's name on it, a gendered name. Who cares? Who cares if the idea dies on the geo-bureaucratic vine? What if those geologists decide the new time unit is just the latest stage of the present Holocene and not the base of a brand new epoch? In that case, guess what? Geologists wouldn't call it the Anthropocene. Only epochs get to have that suffix, scene. Holocene, Pleistocene, Eocene. So, if it were just the latest stage of the Holocene, it'd be named after its golden spike. So we'd get the Crawfordian, for instance. Francine McCarthy would not be heartbroken. I'm hoping very strongly that there will be a Crawfordian in the time scale and hoping very strongly that there'll be an Anthropocene epoch to mark the impact that we've had on the planet. It's not just here in this little lake. It's everywhere on Earth that the, the systems of the Earth have reacted fundamentally to changes that are indisputably of human making, that the systems actually fundamentally changed. My concern when I listen to uh, geologists who are going to inherit this decision that we're going to make on the GSSP to move forward, that they will question whether we shouldn't wait another couple of hundred years to see if this isn't just a short-lived event, because there is no time to wait. What matters most isn't a bunch of words. What matters most is planet Earth and the prospects for humanity over the next thousand years, or hundred, maybe even less. Thomas Homer Dixon you know, there are so many pathways now to catastrophic outcomes on this planet, much more than there used to be, say, during the 1950s at the beginning of the Great Acceleration, when the only plausible pathway, a, really, a real one, of course, was thermonuclear war. But we can chart many others now, given the stresses the global system is under. It's going to be very hard for humanity to dodge all the bullets that are coming our way. You might think of it a bit like the comet that struck Earth at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary and wiped out the dinosaurs. A bit like a human asteroid hitting the planet. The problem, of course, is that the Anthropocene, if it's defined in uh, the mid-20th century, 
the Anthropocene is only about 72 years in duration, not very long in terms of geological time. So we do need to look into the future in order to decide whether the Anthropocene could perhaps just be a, a blip or whether we can have confidence in a changed climate for the foreseeable geological future. With the lowest emission scenario, where we have zero CO2 emissions, we still end up after 300 years with a much warmer global climate than we have at the moment. And the highest scenario, the highest CO2 emissions scenario, takes us back to the early Eocene with extremely warm global climates. The reality is that we're somewhere between these two extremes and that will take us comfortably. Within 300 years, this will take us comfortably back to the mid-Pliocene, very warm temperatures. The message for society is essentially, wake up, we are in trouble. We know that we're exceeding some of the planetary boundaries. We know we've actually left the Holocene. There's an enormous amount of evidence. We're in what, what Paul Crutzen uh, has termed the Anthropocene. But that the Earth system's not in a stable state now. It's in a highly transient state. And where might it go? Here's a voice you haven't heard yet. The Earth system scientist who generated those great acceleration curves, Will Steffen, in an influential 2018 paper, Stefan and colleagues compared Earth's trajectory in the Anthropocene to a series of falling dominoes tumbling toward a climate state Earth hasn't been in for 50 million years. Hothouse Earth, Stefan calls it. We propose that there could be what we call a planetary threshold, um, which is once those dominoes start falling, you can't stop it. Uh, and that would equate to a threshold that would eventually take the Earth's system onto that hothouse trajectory that we postulate in this, in this paper. Once we see that we don't want that world, if we've crossed the planetary threshold, we can't stop that. So, yes, I think it's pretty clear that we cannot go on with business as usual. We need a pretty comprehensive overhaul uh, of what I might call a human enterprise. Yes, I mean, Will Steffen's, you know, another's idea of a hothouse world is a possibility, and that would result in significantly higher sea levels. And places like London and Manhattan and Manhattan Island and, and Shanghai and many other low-lying cities will really struggle. Mark Williams is another member of the Anthropocene Working Group. He studies the geology of cities and the propensity of cities to be fossilized. Yeah, low-lying cities have a very high potential of fossilization. There will be fossil cities in the future. Oh, my God. I'm back. I'm home. And You've seen the first Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston? Yes. Where yeah. at the very end of the movie he realizes the Planet of the Apes is really Earth because he's come across the... Yes, Statue of Liberty on the beach, yes. He finally really did it. You maniacs! You blow it up! God damn you! God damn you all to hell! God damn them all to hell! That's it. He beats his hands on the on the on the sands. Yes, I mean it's it's an incredibly evocative image, and um, you know it, it's 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 yeah. I mean, we we don't want to get there. Yes, we don't want to be in that situation. So how do we avoid that situation? 
Friedelin Krausman. We need a technological development to decouple economic growth from uh, resource use and from energy use. So the basic idea is that we can, based on green technologies, based on efficiency, we will be able to continue growing economically while uh, reducing our metabolism. The biology of societies, their metabolism has to be consistent with the, the source and sink capacities of the planet, right? Um, and we have to do that for a population which will reach 10 billion in, um, in a few decades. For Thomas Homer Dixon, hope lies in what he calls self-reinforcing virtuous cascades versus the pernicious ones at the heart of Earth's current crisis. We actually have a very good scientific understanding of the challenges that we face unbelievable scientific apparatus and perception, accurate perception, not only of the underlying causal mechanisms of climate change, but what we need to do to address it. Whether that's going to be enough to stimulate the virtuous cascades that we need on this planet to change our pathway is a very much an open question. There's another very open question. What if the Anthropocene has declared a new epoch in Earth's history by the world's most eminent geologists? They'd be saying that human beings have pushed Earth into a new unstable state in the course of just 70 years. Will policymakers or anyone care? Mark Williams will. My head is looking dispassionately at the geological evidence, um, because I'm one of the people voting on this. Is there enough evidence to say there's a geological boundary? We've already agreed that. Um, Where exactly will we we put that geological boundary? And that's what we're, we're voting on at present. My head is focused on that. My heart, with a young daughter, is telling me I don't want the world to become a terrible place in the future. And this mark is showing the point where we become the overwhelming force that means we can determine the path of the future. Um, So, you know, the question is then to the politicians, what what, what do you do about this? If we carry on with this trajectory, it's clear what will happen. We will go into a mass extinction event within a relatively short space of time. We have, to, we have to do something about that, yes? You've been listening to The Great Acceleration, a documentary by contributor David Kattenberg. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.